work these things out a lot of times. Ron and I talk about it sometimes. Ned and I used to talk about it sometimes, how cool it is that, you know, I come up to do worship, and I just feel like I'm supposed to say something, and I just say a little something, and then Ron gets up and preaches about it. You know, and we don't talk about it beforehand. I don't know what the title of his message is before it starts or anything like that. Um, and, you know, some churches do that. I, that's no problem. I don't have any problem with it. But it's just neat that how many times that kind of stuff works out. And I was sitting right there oh, over a month ago, I guess. I like to prepare messages, not because I'm necessarily ever planning on speaking them, but I think it's good Bible study, you know. I've listened to a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching. And, and I think when I start kind of preparing a message, it just helps you. you. You know, I get into it, get into the study of it and that kind of thing. So it just kind of helps me to, to study the Word. And I've been working on this message that I thought was kind of neat. And I said, you know what, next time I get a chance to speak, I'm going to preach that message. I think that will be a good one. But I was sitting right there a little over a month ago, and I don't remember exactly what Pastor was talking about, but but Ron was giving his message, and he said something in there, and I just felt like maybe it was the Lord saying, the next time you speak, that's what I want you to speak about. And I said, well, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'll be glad to, Lord, you know. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm slow to blame God for things. I'm not saying he, he directly spoke to me or whatever, but that was just the impression I got. No, that's what you're supposed to speak about. So, Ron asked me a couple of weeks ago about speaking today, this Sunday. Well, last Sunday... I'm back there listening to him speak. And he spoke about our obligations as Christians to other Christians. I think the title of his message was Burden Bearers or something like that. And he talked about our obligation to bear one another's burdens. Wonderful message. He also talked about some of the hard stuff. He said, you know, if we see somebody slipping into sin, falling away from the Lord, getting into some stuff that we know they're not supposed to be into, we have a duty and obligation according to the Scripture to go to those people in love and compassion and to do whatever we can to restore them. That's our responsibility, our duty. So he talked about our responsibilities, at least in part, to people in the church, members of, of the body of Christ. So today I'm going to speak to you about our obligation to people outside of the church. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So we have an obligation to people in the body of Christ for sure, but we also have obligations to people outside of the body of Christ. And this morning, I'm going to talk about the gospel, and I'm going to talk a little bit. We're going to single in a little bit on the role of faith in the gospel. Jesus told us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That doesn't leave anybody out, the whole world, all of creation. And he's talking to us, you know. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I don't have to worry about that. I'm not a missionary. I don't have to worry about that. No, he's talking to all of us. And, you know, I know some of us are a little more gifted at speaking than others. I'm, I'm not one of those, but I know some people are just, they're just, they have this evangelistic spirit in them, man. And everywhere they go, it's just coming out of them. And some of us just aren't really like that. And we say, well... We're supposed to live the life, that's for sure. We're supposed to live the life of a Christian so that people see us and they kind of see Jesus in us. And absolutely, we're supposed to do that. But I don't want you to think that that gets you out of telling people about Jesus. We are supposed to talk to people about Jesus. So I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about the gospel, and we're going to talk about 
like how you present the gospel, and I'm going to present the gospel this morning. So if there's somebody in here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or if there's somebody listening online who doesn't already know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, praise God. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're listening. I'm going to get the opportunity to share the gospel with you this morning. And if everyone in here is a Christian and knows for sure that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and if every person listening to me right now is a Christian sold out to Jesus Christ, praise God. That's so cool. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're listening. I'm going to share the gospel with you. A slightly different reason behind it. I want to share the gospel with you if you're a Christian so that maybe it'll encourage you a little bit. You know, maybe it'll help to equip you a little bit. Maybe you'll feel a little more confident to go out and share the gospel with people. Uh, God once, twice used a few fish and a few loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. He fed 4,000 one time. He fed 5,000 one time with just a few loaves and a few fish. And I believe he can use my crumbs, my few little meager words here this morning to do a mighty work if he chooses to do so. So I want you guys to be encouraged. I want you to leave here a little more comfortable and more excited about sharing the gospel with people. So let's start with the basics. What is the gospel? It surprises me, and it's just interesting, that I feel like you can talk to a lot of Christians, people who go to church, people who claim they're Christians, and you ask them, what does the Bible say the gospel is? And they'll give you a lot of answers, and they'll give you some good stuff, and it's not necessarily that what they're saying is wrong, but it seems to me so few people really know exactly what the scripture says about what the gospel is. So we're going to start there this morning. You can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right there at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul lays it out for us. I'm going to just read the first four verses here. Paul starts by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the simplest form I know to put it in. Jesus died for your sins and for my sins. And it was done according to Scripture. He was buried because that's what you do with dead people. He died, he was dead, and he was buried. And then he raised from the dead on the third day according to Scripture. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three things, really easy to remember. You can teach that to a little child in five minutes. Really easy. Now, typically when we share the gospel, we're going to need to go into a little more depth than that, and we're going to do that, but I want you to understand that's the gospel. And as simple as that sounds and as easy as that may be to remember, it's really deep, man. You can get so deep with all this, and it can get so, like, complex. And we're going to keep things simple this morning, but I really want to drill in here a little bit because the fact that it says he died for our sins, that's key. He didn't just die. He wasn't just some dude that they killed. There was a reason behind it. He died for our sins to pay a price for us 
so that we could be forgiven for our sins that we have committed. He did that for us because we needed that. We need that desperately. He did that for us. And it's according to Scripture. And this is key too because God did this. There are prophecies all in the Old Testament. You can read there's all sorts of places where the the Old Testament speaks about Jesus coming, speaks about Jesus' death, speaks about what he was going to do and why he was coming. This didn't catch God by surprise. He knew exactly what was going on. When they were putting Jesus to death on that cross, it was already planned. This was all part of God's plan from the beginning. I'm going to prove that to you. I'm going to start by reading you part of an account of Jesus' crucifixion. And if you haven't studied Jesus' crucifixion, I encourage you, go to the Bible and study Jesus' crucifixion. It is moving and powerful and heartbreaking and all of those things. But I'm going to read you from Matthew, from the 27th chapter of Matthew, part of this account. Beginning in verse 35, he writes, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Remember that. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Remember that. And saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. These are the leading religious figures in Jerusalem. These are Jewish people, the leading authorities in the church, mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Remember that. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've heard a lot of people comment on, on this, why Jesus said this, what, what was going on, what was Jesus talking about when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm sure there's a lot of things that, that you could correctly ascribe to that and a lot of things you could say about it that, that are true things, but to me it's kind of simple. See, back in that time, it was common for the people to get together, like come to the synagogue. They would listen to people read scripture, and they would worship. They would sing songs, psalms. The book of Psalms in the Bible, that, that word means songs, basically. So most of those psalms written in there were intended to be sung, and in fact, they did sing them. They would get together at their assemblies, come to the synagogue or whatever, and what they would typically sing would be psalms right out of the book of Psalms. Now, they didn't have them numbered with verses and all that like we do today. They might know them by the name of a psalm or something like that. But what they would do is the worship leader would stand up and he would begin singing the song. 
he would give the first line or so, and the congregation would say, oh, yeah, that's that song. And they would join in because they had these things memorized. They weren't carrying around Bibles like me and you. They didn't have a phone with all this cool stuff on it, you know. Most of them probably never even got to touch a, a scroll and maybe never even got to look and read one, but they had to go somewhere and hear somebody read it. So they memorized massive amounts of stuff. It's just incredible the stuff they would memorize. They would memorize these psalms, and they would sing them from memory. So Jesus is putting people in remembrance of a very special psalm. He's saying, go read this psalm or remember this psalm. Recall this. There's a reason. There's an importance. I'm not saying he was beginning worship, but they would have understood when they heard these first lines that Jesus said, they would have understood this is a psalm, and they would have gone back. And so I want to present that psalm to you. I'm probably not going to read through the whole thing, but this is the 22nd psalm. The 22nd psalm says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So this is just the title of it. David wrote this, and it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This psalm that I'm reading to you was written over a thousand years before Christ was born. Ten centuries before Jesus showed up on the earth, David wrote this psalm. It's almost word for word. It's almost a precise exact account of what happened. To Christ on the cross. So I believe that when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what he was doing. He was saying, Read your Bible. This is all part of the plan. Read your Bible. God knows what he's doing, God knows what's going on. Man didn't do this. Man didn't do this. Man didn't come up with this idea of crucifying Christ. The Jewish people, they didn't come up with this idea. The Romans didn't come up with this idea. God did this. This is all according to his plan. 
I'll stop with the psalm there, but I do want to read you one other place from that psalm because as you read it, it just it's so cool. It just gets more and more encouraging. There's two verses here, 23 and 24, where it says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Encourage you to go read the 22nd Psalm. It is so cool. I read through it every now and then and just love it. And and I think it will be an encouragement to you. So we need to understand that this gospel, Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, being raised from the dead, this is all according to Scripture. This is all part of God's plan. And he told us about it beforehand. You know, Jesus himself said at least three times that he was going to be killed and he was going to raise from the dead. He told people that directly. They're going to kill me and I'm going to raise from the dead. You know, And then it happened. Now, that's news, right? If, if a guy dies, gets put to death, buried, and then comes back from the dead three days later, that's news. That's, that's a newsworthy event, right? Especially if he told you ahead of time this is what's going to happen. But this word gospel, it means good news. In fact, it means really good news. This is great news. Okay, so we can see, obviously, how it's news. What makes it good news? What makes it great news? Well, there there are a number of things. Of course, it's good news because it makes a way for us to have eternal life with the Father. That's awesome. That's, That's wonderful. That's what his death means, that we can be forgiven of our sins. And because of that, we can come in right relationship with the Lord. And we can have communion with the Lord. And one day, spend eternity with our Father in heaven. That's awesome. That makes it good news. But I'll tell you what else makes it good news, in my opinion. And that's the bad news. See, if you know the bad news, because I'm warning you, the bad news is really, really bad. And when you know the bad news, it makes the good news so awesome. I mean, just so awesome. So I want to talk about that a little bit. I don't want to get too dark and heavy in here this morning, but we're going to talk about the truth. We're going to talk about what the Bible says. And I, and I want to talk about this a little because I feel like oftentimes kind of the current gospel that we see today seems to kind of dwell solely on God's love and mercy and kindness and that's all good and it's all true. It makes it sound like he just loves us just as we are and he just wants to save us in order to have a relationship with us because we're just so awesome. You know? You wonderful little thing, you. You, you precious little sinner, you. You know, God just... Now, God does love us, don't get me wrong. If he didn't love us, he would have never sent his own son to die for us. But I hear this kind of gospel message that it's all about, oh, God just loves you so much. Would you just, you just need to, you know, just respond to him. He just wants to know you, and you're just so wonderful and all that. Well, we're, we're not wonderful. We're sinners. We're sinners. The scripture's clear. We have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And you might say, well, I, I never thought of my, I've never purposefully rebelled against. But you have. We all have. We might not term it that way. We might not say those things. But we have rejected 
the truth of the living, holy, and righteous God. I'm going to read you a little bit about what the scripture says. And I just picked a few, man. It's, there's a lot in there, trust me. You can go through and see a lot of this in the scripture. I'm just going to go through a few of them kind of quickly. Because I, I'm afraid that when we only talk about God's love and mercy and compassion, we leave out a whole other side of God. And I want to make sure we don't do that this morning. Psalms 5, 4 through 6 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You ever told a lie? The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 7, 11 through 13 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Psalm 11, 4 through 7 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Proverbs 8, 12 through 13. This is wisdom speaking. I think it's so cool. Wisdom talking to us. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Have you ever been prideful? Have you ever said perverted things that you shouldn't say? Oh, my goodness. When I read these things and I think of the things I've done and said in my life, what a merciful, merciful God we serve. Thank you. God, absolutely, Delphine. Thank you, God. I want to read a bit of a passage from Amos. I love the book of Amos. It's so neat. And this fifth chapter, man, this heavy stuff. But beginning in verse 18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I've heard Pastor Ron say this several times, and I love it. God ain't playing. Jesus is not playing. He is a kind and merciful and compassionate God full of love and forgiveness, and I stand here as a living testimony to his grace and his mercy. I promise you, 
So I love his grace and his mercy. I love it. I depend on it. I'm so thankful for it, and I can't talk enough about it. But there's this other side to God. You know, there's this other side to God. Jesus said in Matthews 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. I've always found that fascinating, you know. I'm afraid of big, mean-looking people with knives and guns and stuff, you know, because that dude could do something to me, right? It's natural. Jesus said, you don't understand. You shouldn't be afraid of that guy. All he could do is cut your head off and kill you. That's all he can do. Why are you afraid of him? You want to know who you should be afraid of? You should be afraid of the one that can kill you and then cast your body and soul into the eternal flames. That's who you ought to be scared of. I hear people kind of say stuff. Sometimes I want to address this a little bit because people kind of ask this question. Did Jesus really talk about hell? Short answer is yes. Jesus really talked about hell. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the scripture. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He gave more of a description of hell than he did heaven. I know we don't like to hear those things, but Jesus wanted us to know the truth. He wanted us to know what we're up against and what we're facing. Jesus said, I won't give you the references for all these little things. I just wrote this together, so I'm not going to give you the specific references, but these are all out of, right out of the Bible. Jesus said that the unrighteous will be cast into eternal fire a place of eternal punishment. Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a place of unquenchable fire, of eternal torment where the worm does not die. He says there will be great wailing and gnashing of teeth in that place. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we go, yes, the devil and the false prophet and the beast got thrown into the lake of fire. Praise God. Hold on a minute. Just come down here to verse 15, and it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Have you ever told a lie? Boy, I have. So this is bad. Hell's bad. This is lake of fire. The Bible is vivid, more vivid maybe than I wish it were. It's bad. And we kind of tend to think, well, yeah, but this is just for really bad people, right? This is for really bad people, the, the Hitlers and the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Ted Bundys of the world, people that have just done these horrible, nasty things. Those are the people, right? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I hate to tell you, but that puts us in the same boat with Hitler and Bundy and Dahmer and every other wicked person you can ever think of. Now, I'm not saying that you've done things just as bad. I think there are degrees to sin. I think there's going to be degrees to punishment uh, in eternity and that sort of thing. But I am saying, we're all in the same boat, y'all. We're all in the same boat. And the boat's sinking. And it's not, it's like the Titanic, but it's not sinking in icy water somewhere in the Pacific. It's sinking in a lake of fire. We need a lifeboat. We need some help. We need some life preserver. We need somebody to do something for us. So this is where the gospel comes in, and it's wonderful, wonderful good news. So you can present this to people. You can tell people about Jesus. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be hard. It can be just as simple as you want to make it. You can tell people what Jesus has done for you. I think testimonies are wonderful. Tell people. This is what Jesus did for me. I don't know what he's going to do for you, but I can tell you what he did for me. And I can tell you what the gospel is. And when I get the opportunity to present the gospel, I want to go through just a little bit of this with you really quick. The way I like to do it, if I have the opportunity, of course, you have to do things the way time merits and the situation merits. I like to start with this. Here's my first question. How did we get here? There's one undeniable truth. I don't care what you believe, whether you're an atheist or whatever, we're here. All this stuff is here. You can go outside at night on a clear night and see millions of stars, and you can get out your telescope and see millions of galaxies filled with millions more stars. There's a lot of stuff. This universe is so incredibly vast. There are billions, we know at least, there are billions of galaxies. Galaxies. Each of those galaxies contains hundreds of millions to billions of stars in each one. And we have no idea how many planets. We, can, we don't even bother to try and estimate. Nobody has a clue. There's a lot of stuff in this universe. How did that happen? How did that get here? What's your explanation? The atheists likes to mock, not, not all of them, not all of them. Some, I've met some atheists who are very nice people, but there's a group of people out there today that are antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they call themselves atheists, and, man, they'll, they'll come after you. Okay, if God didn't do it, how'd it happen? What's your theory? There just isn't one. They'll say, well, the, the Big Bang, that doesn't explain anything. It just means there was a big explosion, made a lot of noise one time. Because science tells us, secular science tells us, that if you go far back enough in history, you come to a point where there was nothing. Nothing. No matter, no energy, no space, no time. My mind can't wrap around that. I know I just The best I can do is see a big empty void, you know. But there wasn't even that. There was nothing, literally nothing. I think it was Aristotle one time that said, nothing is what rocks dream about. It's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. So that's what science, current, secular science says. There was nothing. And then it exploded. Y'all explain that. 
I don't know. Everything, every bit of matter and energy, space and time, all of that exploded into existence all at one time. For no reason whatsoever, no cause, no purpose, nothing behind it. It just, you know, nothing does that sometimes. (laughs) Except that science tells us that nothing never does that. That nothing comes from nothing. That's one of the most fundamental laws of physics. Nothing comes from nothing. Yet, it's here. How'd that happen? I have a theory. Then I go to, well, look at the earth. However it got here, here's the earth. Here's this big rock revolving around the sun. You got some dirt. You got some water. You got a few gases, some hydrogen, some oxygen, some ammonia, stuff like that around, some minerals and things like that. And one day, a little speck of dirt turned into a living being. Happens all the time, right? That's what, that's the choice you have. Either nothing exploded into everything and created all these planets and galaxies, or God did it. Either a planet with no organic material on it whatsoever, nothing animate on it whatsoever, produced life everywhere you look all on its own somehow with no reason or no purpose, or God did it. Tell me which one sounds crazier to you. And it goes further than that because God has designed us in a way to know him. He has purposefully put things in us in the way we think, in the way we behave, in the way we believe to point us to the truth. For instance, you can ask people, and again, I don't care what they call themselves, what they believe, they say they're atheists, whatever. Do you believe there's any such thing as right and wrong? Do you believe that there's any such thing as moral? Do you believe that there are things that are just wrong to do? And pretty much everybody will say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, like torturing little babies. Okay, that's it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's not a matter of preference or I just prefer to do things that you, you know, that kind of thing. There are things that are just wrong. We'll all pretty much admit to that. Here's the fascinating thing. Then ask them, have you ever done anything wrong? And almost every person you talk to will say, well, yeah. I mean, I'm not perfect. You know, I've done some stuff. Isn't that fascinating? How do these accidental bags of chemicals walking around ever come to the place where we decided, you know, there's a right and wrong, and I'm on the wrong side of it. I'll be t- <laughs> How does that happen? I have a theory. Do you know that every civilization that we've been able to study, to do any reasonable amount of study that we've been able to find, you know, evidence and things to look at, throughout history that we've ever looked at has some form of worship. They worship some form of deity. Isn't that remarkable? Why do these creatures crawl up out of the mud and evolve into whatever they evolved into, and then one day say, oh, there must be a God somewhere we need to worship. You know, how's that happen? But it's just in us. And I have a theory about that, too. How about this need and desire we have for meaning and purpose, right? It's been called the greatest question of all. What is the meaning of life? 
If you're just a bunch of chemicals, who cares what the meaning of... There's no meaning. There's no purpose. You take God out, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's nothing behind this. You and I aren't here for any particular reason. We just accidentally somehow showed up. But none of us believe that. None of us feel that. And when you tell people that, it doesn't liberate them. It, it crushes them. People don't want to hear, your life has no meaning. They don't want to hear that. We want meaning and purpose. And we want to find meaning and purpose. How does that happen? i got a theory about that. Also, God has designed us to be like little truth detectors running around, right? You don't think about it most of the time, but God has built in you and designed in you this ability to look for and find truth. We use reason and logic and things like that, and we use it when we don't even know that we're doing it. It's just the way we are. It's the way our brains work. Why is that? Why is that, you know? What is truth to a bunch of cosmic accidents you know who cares but God has built us and designed us that way and so this is where this important role of faith comes in I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about because God has chosen in his infinite wisdom for whatever reason to use faith as the vehicle that saves us that that somehow connects us with Jesus the scripture is clear. Galatians 3.22 says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And of course you know John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believes. So it's a matter of faith. And I want to deal with something briefly here that I see the enemy using, a tactic of the enemy, a strategy that the enemy uses to come against Christians and to come against non-Christians. They attack this faith, and it angers me. I can't stand it when I see it. And so I want to deal with that this morning. And I hope to kind of equip you a little bit so that if you see this, you'll kind of know how to handle it, or at least it won't bother you so much. Because they say that our faith is just silliness. We're just believing in silly superstitions and fairy tales, right? Richard Dawkins, who I hope none of you in here know, but Richard Dawkins, a prominent professor of biology. I think he teaches at Cambridge, one of the big places in, in England. He's written a number of books. I'm sure he's a really smart guy, but he's an atheist. And, man, he hates Christianity. Now, he has softened a little bit in recent years, which I find rather fascinating. But he has spent a large part of his career and his time attacking, he says religion, but he always attacks Christians, you know. A lot of people say, I'll just hate organized religion, but they always come after the Christians. And Dawkins has come after the Christians hard. And he has attacked this idea of faith. And this is something I hear from other people. I don't know if they're picking it up from him or what. But Dawkins said in his book, The Selfish Gene, something like, and I'll misquote this a little bit, but he says, faith is the belief in something in absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. So what he's saying is faith, what we Christians call faith, and he's talking specifically about Christian faith in this place. Faith is when there's no evidence, 
No reason to believe something's true, but you believe it anyway. And then he takes it a little further and says, in fact, it's worse than that. It's when all the evidence says it's not true, and you believe it anyway. This idea of blind faith, that there's no real good argument for it. There's no evidence, but you just got to believe it anyway. That's hogwash, okay? Hogwash. That is not biblical. That is not the biblical idea of faith at all. In fact, that word in the New Testament, the Greek word, P-I-S-T-I-S, if I'm pronouncing this right, pistis. That's the word they use for faith. And the root of that word means something like persuaded or persuasion, to be persuaded by the evidence. It's been compared to what happens with a juror when he sits and watches a trial and sees the evidence and hears the testimony, and he's persuaded that this person is guilty or not guilty or whatever. That's kind of where that word comes from. And I want to talk about that a little bit because you guys are built and designed by God to detect truth. And it's not blind faith that we're talking about here. And I want to do a little little demonstration with you that I, I love to do. I've done it with a lot of kids in the past. I hope you guys will like it too. I got something in my pocket that I just took out and I'm holding it in my hand. Okay? And I want to see if somebody in here can guess what I got in my hand, all right? I, and I meant to bring a prize this morning, and I forgot, y'all. I'm sorry, I got a bottle of water I hadn't opened yet. If that, Who wants to guess? Somebody give me a guess of what I'm holding in my hand. Delphine, you got a guess? A penny. Who else? Who's got a guess? Come on. Quarter. Somebody says a quarter, okay. A dime. A key. What else? Heather, you got a guess? A guitar pick. Uh Huh? One of you guys in the back got a guess? Okay, okay, fine, nothing. It's not nothing, but okay, you can guess nothing. (laughs) Did somebody say something else? Plot twist. Yeah, I'm holding a plot twist. Any other guesses? A rapper. Okay, a rapper. All right, paper clip. All right, we got some pretty good guesses. We got some pretty good guesses. Who said key? Was that you, George? Congratulations. George guessed that I'm holding a key in my hand. Now, that's pretty cool. Think about all of the things that exist in the world today. Think about all of the things that exist in the world today. And with just, what, 10 guesses maybe? Somebody guess what I'm holding in my hand. How's that possible? That's crazy. Do you notice nobody guessed a bicycle? Right? Nobody guessed a gold brick. Nobody guessed a black with a spider. Right? A red hot ember. Right? Nobody guessed those things. Why? Because those things don't make any sense. Without even thinking about it, your mind says, okay, what could he have had in his pocket? What makes sense for him to have in his pocket that he could conceal in his hand? And your brain just starts eliminating all sorts of things and saying, nope, 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 couldn't be any of that. You know what? It could be this. Nobody guessed a tube of lipstick. And and thank y'all for not... I'm sure we got somebody in here smart aleck enough if they'd have thought about it. But I appreciate that. Nobody guessed a tube of lipstick. Somebody guessed a guitar pick. What an odd thing to guess, right? Unless you know that I play guitar. 
and that a guitar pick would easily fit in my pocket. And Heather knows I don't go anywhere without a guitar pick in my pocket. You never know when you're going to come across a guitar that needs to be played. I want to be prepared. Okay? But George guessed a key. Right? A key fits. It fits in my hand. This is a key. I don't like a lot of stuff in my pocket, and I hate big bulky key rings and stuff. And although I do keep my keys on key rings, but I keep them in a truck. But this key, for whatever reason, I stuck it in my pocket years ago. It's the key to my office in Orangeburg. And I don't know why I never put it on a ring or anything, but it's just been in my pocket. It stays with my change. I take it out every night, put it in every morning. And it's a little silver key made at Ace Hardware that I use for my office in Orangeburg. And George just kind of figured that out, you know, magically, right? Now, I'm going to ask you guys, what am I holding in my hand? A key. How you know? Because I just told you I'm holding a key. Come on. It's not that difficult. Most of you guys know me. I hope most of you know me well enough to know that I try to be honest. I'm, I'm not a liar. I try to tell people the truth. And I'm holding a key in my hand. I'm not asking you to believe that I'm holding a motorcycle in my hand. I'm not asking you to believe that I'm holding a rattlesnake in my hand. It's perfectly reasonable that I could have a key in my hand. But at this point, if you believe me, and I hope you do because I'm telling you the truth, that's faith. Okay? That's faith. We didn't have to do a whole lot of research and a whole lot of study and ask a whole bunch of questions. Your brain went through these things and said, you know what, that, that makes sense, that could work. So much so that you guessed it without even me giving you any kind of clues or anything. And now I'm telling you that I have a key in my hand. And I hope you can trust me and believe me when I tell you this is a key. And now I'm going to destroy faith and remove faith altogether. I'm going to show you that I have a key in my hand. It's a little silver key that says Ace Hardware on it because that's where I got it made. And if you wanted to go check it out, it fits my office in Orangeburg. That's faith. And then that's faith turning into something else, turning into knowledge. One day, you and I are going to see with our own eyes what God has asked us to believe. And it's no longer going to be a matter of faith. It's going to be a matter of knowledge. You know, the old hymn that says something about one day when our faith becomes sight. One day, that's going to happen to me and you. But at this point, God uses faith. And he has given us the ability to discern these things and to sort through these things and figure these things out. But I do want to give you a warning. Just because God has given you this ability and you can sort through this knowledge and you can find truth and you can kind of find things that don't make sense and sort through things and just because he's given you this, this understanding of, of morality and just because he's given you a yearning for meaning and even a yearning for worship and for recognizing some sort of deity, that's not saving faith, okay? And I want to make sure that we understand this morning. That's faith, Okay? It's believing something when you haven't actually seen it yet. But that's not saving faith. Listen to what the scripture says. John 6, 44. This is Jesus talking. We all know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to get to God. That's through 
Jesus Christ. But Jesus also said this, which I find very fascinating. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 63. This is Jesus again. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, is Paul writing. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the bottom line. You cannot figure out how to save yourself. You cannot reason yourself or anyone else into the kingdom of God. You can figure out that there is a God, that there must be a God. You can reason to conclude that the Bible is, is true and it's a good source. And then you can read that the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Messiah and that faith in him saves us. However, saving faith comes from God, not from man. The ability that God gives us as a matter of design to reason logically, to point us to the truth of his existence and his word does not save us, it convicts us. And I want you to understand, I think that it's very important. It convicts us so that we are without excuse. Do you remember when Jesus and the disciples were walking one day? I think they were going to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus kind of out of the blue says, Hey, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, Well, some say Elijah, some say um, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist. Jesus said, Hmm, who do you say I am? And Peter replied, Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember Jesus' response? He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's fascinating because Peter had been with Jesus some time. Peter had seen Jesus perform miracles. He had seen Jesus raise the dead. He had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people and feed 4,000 people with those loaves and fishes we were talking about earlier. Peter had already walked on water. You remember when Jesus comes walking up and they're in the boat and Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call me to come out to you. And Jesus said, come on, Peter. And Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on water. But when he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out, Peter. I, I know you better than that. You didn't do this. God my Father in heaven did this. And I'm saying to you this morning, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're listening right now and the Lord's doing something in your heart and you listen to my meager words and somehow the Lord does something in you and uses that and you become a Christian through that, I'm saying, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I didn't reveal it to you, but my Father in heaven did. So, I want to wrap this up and conclude today by reading a section for you out of Romans. And I think when I read this part of Romans for you, you'll kind of understand why I, I went through this stuff the way I did and why I've put this together and why I try to kind of use this. But I want to, before I do that, kind of leave you with, when you're presenting the gospel, you know, people 
if the Lord's doing something in them, if they begin to have questions, they're liable to say, well, what do I do? What do I do about this? And, of course, the Bible says it's about faith. It's about believing in Jesus. The Scripture says, if you profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, of course, just saying, okay, Jesus is Lord, doesn't save you. It doesn't have any magic powers. It's about that belief. It's about that faith. And God has to do that in a person, okay? But here's what you can tell people to do. Here's what I would tell people. I would say, well, Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For the one who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it is open. Ask him. Ask him. Go to God and ask him. Be honest with God. He already knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's going on. He knows your heart. Just go to God and say, look, I need help, Lord. I need help. I don't know what to do. Lord, I'm a mess. Help me. If you can do something for me, Lord, help me. If you can change me, Lord, change me. I need to be born again. That's phrase that the scripture uses. That's what Jesus said. We need to be born again. And this is a supernatural act of God. Ask him. Ask him. So let's, let's read Romans 1 and I'll wrap this up. Not the whole thing. Don't have heart attack. As I read this, I hope you'll be listening and I hope you'll understand and hear why I talk about, when I talk about the gospel, I talk about the creation of the earth and the universe. I talk about the creation of life. I talk about the God-given inherent knowledge of morality, justice, truth, and reason. And I talk about man's instinctive recognition of and desire to worship deity and our search for meaning. And I talk about the wrath of God towards sin and towards sinners. It's all here in Romans 1. And I want you to remember as I read this, although I've talked about him a good bit today, I've mentioned atheists several times. According to the Bible, there's no such thing as an atheist. According to his word, right here in Romans 1, you're going to hear it right here in a minute, there's no such thing as an atheist. Listen to this. This begins in 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served. 
the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I think the best you and I can do is like that Jesus, that story Jesus told about the man who was having the feast. And once it was prepared, he sent his workers and said, Okay, we already got our guest list and all. Go out and invite the people to the feast. And y'all remember what happened. Some said, I just bought some land. I got I to check that out. I just bought some oxen. I just got married. I can't, can't go. And they went back and told the man, and he was mad. He said, well, then to heck with the guest list. Go out there and invite some other people. And they went out and invited more people. And they came back and said, more people are coming. We still have room, but, but people are coming. He said, well, then go out into the highways and the hedges and find whoever you can find and invite them because my feast is going to be full. That's you and I. That's you and I. That's what he's asking us to do. Invite people to the feast. It's just that simple. You notice the master didn't fuss at the people when they said, they, they won't come. He didn't say, y'all not explaining it right. What's wrong with y'all? Come on, y'all. It's a feast. You got to, you know, you got to sell it. He didn't say that. He said, well, then the heck with those people. Go invite some other people. If they don't want to come to the feast, that's on them. All right? That's what you and I are called to be. I, I want to take all the pressure off of you. You can't save anybody, okay? So no pressure. Just invite them. Just invite them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and let him do whatever he wants to do. Brother, will you close us in prayer? Great message. Great teaching, Chaz. Great teaching. When you talk about faith, unseen faith, Faith in God, faith in Jesus. Uh, we all should have testimonies of that. We put our faith in God. We put our faith in the Lord. And he manifests those things in our lives. And you knew without a shadow of a doubt that it was him. You knew it. Because no one else knew it. No one else knew what you prayed for. No one else knew what you prayed for. But God. But God. How is that possible? And some, we have those same people that pray for those things and God manifests them in their lives. And they knew it was God. They knew it could not have been no one else because no one else heard them praying. But yet, they will not glorify God. They will not give God the glory for it. They will not. That's the part that amazes me. That we don't see that. We don't see these churches today filled. Even though God is doing wonderful things in people's lives. By faith. By their prayers. He is showing them day in and day out who he is. Who he is. And what he can do for them if they ask. And they refuse to glorify him before man. But that's not us. No, sir. That's not us. No, that's not us here at Capital City Church. We praise him for who he are. Not for what he do. We know that when we pray to him, that those prayers will manifest themselves. That's our faith. Without a shadow of a doubt, we know, we trust, and we believe in God. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Do we believe in God? If you need healing, do you believe that God will heal you? If you need favor that no man or woman can give you, do you believe that God will show you favor? Do you believe that God will help you in your time of need when man lets you down? When we let you down, because we are all fallible. When you put your faith in God and say, God, I need you, God. I'm going through a rough time, God. And my brother or my sister can't help me with this, God. I need you. I need the unseen God to help me. The unseen God. And that next day or the next week, his help has arrived for you. That's wonderful. That's undescribable. That's the love of God. That is the love of Almighty God. You know, the, the trick of the enemy, he doesn't want you to worship God. He doesn't want you to shout for God because he wants you to shout for him. So when we keep our mouths closed in the presence of the Lord, you're obeying the enemy. You're worshiping Satan by being quiet. You're worshiping him. We praise God because we know God. Do not let the enemy keep your mouths closed when we should be worshiping and praising God. That's who we are. That's why we were created to worship God before man. So man can see us worshiping the unseen God and their faith can grow. Their faith can grow. So we thank you, Brother Chaz, for that message. Father, we come to you and we thank you, Father. We thank you for using your mighty vessel today, almighty God. Pouring your spirit in him to give us knowledge of your word, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all things that you've created, God. Not because we understand everything, God. Somehow, God, we know that you are with us, that you give us that knowledge. You called us to your house. You called us to have faith, God. We just can't have it on our own. We just can't say, I think I love God. No. I think I'm just going to accept Jesus. No. When that come upon us, that's something that you did, God. That's something that you did. So I call on you, God. And I say call on God. Call your children back to you. Call them back to you. Those ones that's turned away or those ones that don't really desire to know you. Call them as you called me to you, God. You called me to you, God. I didn't turn my ways and, and said I wanted you. You put that in me. And God, I thank you. We all thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. Even when we can't see it, God, our faith lies in you. Our trust lies in you. Man cannot do the things that you have done, God. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, Father, we honor you. 
we will make sure we give you the honor, the praise, and the glory each and every day for all things and even the things that we do not see. In Jesus' name. These altars are open.